These verses are from the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, 6 through 7, 11, 13, 16, 19 through 28. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps stationed throughout the whole kingdom. Over three presidents, including Daniel, to these satraps gave account, so the king might suffer no loss. So Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. The king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. So the presidents and satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection to the kingdom, but they could find no grounds for complaint or any corruption because he was faithful and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. So the presidents and satraps conspired and came to the king and said to him, O, Dar o King Darius, live forever. All the presidents and all the presidents of the kingdom, the the prefects and satraps, the counselors and the governors agreed that the king should establish ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever prays to anyone, divine or human, for thirty days except you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions. The conspirations came and found Daniel praying and seeking for mercy before his God. They responded to the king, Daniel, one of exiles from Judah pays no attention to you. O king, or the interdict, have you signed, but he is saying his prayers three times a day. Then the king gave the command, that, and Daniel was brought and thrown into a den of lions. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. Then at the break of day, the king got up and hurried to the den of lions. When he came near the den, where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you faithfully serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel then said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths so that they won't hurt me. Because I was found blamelessly for being him before him and also before you, O king, I have done no wrong. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Dan Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trust in his God. Then king gave a command to those who had accused Dave, Daniel were brought and thrown into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. The king, then King Darius wrote, All of the people in the nations of every language throughout the whole world may have abundant prosperity. I make a decree that all of my royal dominion people should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is living God. Enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his domain has no end. He delivers and rescues. He works and signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. For he has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, and for the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The passage and the whole entire book of Daniel. First, this book is really old. It's um, 
maybe 2,000 years old, maybe 2,600 years old. Uh, I, I don't know how old it is because I was not there when it was written. Um, it's certainly 2,000 plus years old. It's probably older. And we can be honest, there's really not a big difference between you and I as we read this. If the book was 2,600, 2,400, 2,200, no one cares. It doesn't matter. It's just really old. It's an old, old story. Well, the second fact about this passage and the book of Daniel as a whole is that this particular section of the Old Testament is particularly tricky because it was uh, written in Aramaic. And so, I, I don't know Aramaic. I, I'm going to bet you don't know Aramaic. The other portions of Daniel were written in Hebrew, which I know, you know enough to like, really mess up, and I'm going to bet that you might know enough to really mess up alongside me. And so uh, it's just uh, an old book in an old language about old people and old things long, 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 long time ago. And this uh, book of Daniel tells the stories of Daniel and his homeboys in uh, this foreign court in a foreign land. Chapter 1, let's recap. They're exiled and they got to do a weird diet. Chapter 2, Daniel interprets a dream that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes a big old statue, and the lads, they don't want to bow down, so he chucks them in the fire, and uh, they make it out alive, and Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree that no one can blaspheme Yahweh. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, and it gets weird here, y'all. Nebuchadnezzar suffers from lycanthropy, maybe, you can Google that. Uh, or maybe it's a metaphor, or maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, like I said, it just gets weird. And then he comes back after a year of like living in the wild, and Daniel uh, told him it was all going to happen. Chapter 5, King Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. No, 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 King Belshazzar. What happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? He's the guy, right? He's like the, the main protagonist or the antagonist or something. He's the main character in the story. Well, King Belshazzar was the last king of the Babylonian Empire. He also, technically speaking, is the dude running the place. When King Nebuchadnezzar is suffering from whatever medical affliction he's going through in chapter 4. Ah, then chapter 6, our chapter for today. King Darius. Yeah, that's right. Another king. It's like these uh, kings keep coming and going and getting replaced. And our, our narrative really lacks consistency. Uh, it lacks these consistent um, antagonists, these kings who are put in perspective to Daniel and his friends. It's like the only consistent thing in the story is Daniel and God and the faithfulness that God, um, the, sorry, the faithfulness that Daniel has in God. So it can be difficult to follow. We need to remember that the Bible is told within a historical context. But these are not fairy tales. They're not moral fables to teach us how to be good boys and good girls. There is historicity in these events. People, places, times, cultures, locales, and more. So, let me sum it all up for you in one sentence to bring us up to speed without putting anyone to sleep, unless you're already asleep, in which case I can't help you. Um, so, here we go. The Hebrew people were exiled to the Babylonian Empire, which was later conquered by the Persian Empire. There, I did it. I summarized multiple hundred pages of, uh, in one sentence. Not too difficult. And so chapter 6, our selection for today. Daniel and the lion's den. It's the famous story about Daniel. It begins with the Persian king, Darius. And Darius 
Shocker. He fancies himself some sort of god emperor, and like the power has gone to his head, um, which doesn't it always. He's convinced by his advisors to make a decree that'll somehow trap Daniel, and if that folks are going to pray, they got to pray to him and no, and no one else. And so uh, Darius is stuck. His law is binding, but he doesn't want to kill Daniel. That much is clear from the passage. And he doesn't want to kill Daniel because Daniel has been proven time and time again to be useful and resourceful. I don't think these foreign kings care about his religious heart. I don't think they care about kind of his moral character. But they certainly um, love him for his usefulness. He has uh, interpreted dreams again and again, and they've come to pass as true. He's a, a trusted advisor. He is um, trustworthy. They're not going to, you know, um, entrust him with something that he's going to just drop the ball on. Daniel has proven himself time and time again. But the decree is struck, and Darius, well, his hands are tied. And so he throws Daniel in the lion's den for breaking the decree. And this is either one of two things in our story. It is a little ambiguous in the text, let's be clear. Um, either This is either a death penalty or it's a uh, trial by ordeal, which was a fairly common thing in the ancient Near East. And I think both are fair interpretations. I don't want to get hung up on that discussion. I just figured I'd mention it for the curious. The lions, as we know in the story, they don't eat Daniel, but his accusers and their families are tossed in, and that's that. Scene. Roll black. Credits. Story all done. Um, And I'm left wondering, what in the world is this all about? (laughs) What am I supposed to do with this story? Uh, It's far from, as Pastor Peter mentioned in the Fiery Furnace, the flannel graphs of our upbringing, where it's like you got the little, you know, Darius right here, and let's let's put in like uh, Daniel and like the little flannel lions, and tell the story about how, you know, God or an angel came down and and helped Daniel, and and God will help you. I just don't think that's what the story is about at all. As I read it, I think it is something far deeper and more interesting than that. So what am I supposed to do with this story? I have four takeaways for us today. That's right, four, not three, not five, but four is the magic number. Four takeaways that I think will help us make sense of Daniel and the lion's den. And some of these, I think, really will help us make sense of the whole book of Daniel and probably help us make sense of some of the Bible while we're at it. The first one is that this is not just a historical remembrance, but rather this is a, a model for future behavior. The Old Testament stories, all of them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Saul, I'm getting out of order, Solomon, the prophets, all of these stories are not just records of historical facts or historical things that happened, but they're supposed to be models for faithfulness in life. They teach us how to conduct ourselves when our feet are held to the fire, or maybe when you're thrown into a den of lions, either literally or metaphorically. These stories teach us how to act and what to do in the face of adversity. They teach us how to be faithful to the call that God has placed on our hearts. They're to shape generations to come. They're not just moralizing a story. Let me put it this way. I have never once thought to myself, hmm, what would the, the tortoise do in the tortoise and the hare? 
It's just, it's not how I conduct myself in everyday life. I don't look to Aesop's fables as a way for moral guidance. But these stories that we find in the Bible are stories that I frequently find myself wondering, how would Moses handle the situation? Or what would Jesus do in this situation? What did the apostles do? How did Paul conduct himself when he didn't know which way to go? I think these stories teach us great things about our character and how we need to guide ourselves in these situations. That's the first takeaway I have for us this morning. The second one I have is, uh, this is a motif throughout all of Daniel. Despite present appearances, God is in control. This happens in all of the lives of all the characters in all the Bible. Jonah is swallowed by a whale, and you're like, well, he's a goner, he's dead, right? But despite present appearances, God is in control. Uh, Ruth is in a foreign land, and there's a famine, and she's like, she's going to die. She's got no one to call her people. But despite present appearances, God is in control. There's a famine in the land in ancient Israel, and uh, the, the tribes of um, Israel are trying to survive. And one of their brothers, Joseph, is in the house of the Pharaoh, and he delivers them from their problem. Despite appearances, God is in control. When the church is persecuted in the early church, and still to this day in certain parts of the world, God is in control. When Romans come to capture Jesus, despite present appearances, God is in control. When you get a diagnosis, despite present appearances, God is in control. When you don't know what the future will hold in this nation, when you don't know what the future will hold with your job, or you don't know what the future will hold with whatever, God is in control. The second takeaway I have for us this morning. The third takeaway I have is that there seems to be this um, conflict of laws in the narrative that we heard, and really in the previous story as well, with them bowing down to this idol, which was a law that they made. In verse 25, Darius is quoted as the ruler of all the tongues, tribes, and nations. Put that in contrast, it sounds a lot like what happens in Revelation that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's this kind of wordplay back and forth. Who is in control and whose law is more important? Is it the law of the land or is it the law of God? Is our president or our Congress or our house in control or is God in control? Is the next president four years from now in control or is God in control? Is the next whatever, a thousand years from now, in control? No, God is in control. There's this continual back and forth in the book of Daniel about where does your allegiance fall, who do you serve, and who is in control? And time and time again, Daniel teaches us that our allegiance is to God, and we serve no one but God, and God is in control. The fourth takeaway I have for us today is that there actually might be a cost to your discipleship. There actually might be a cost to your discipleship. 
And if we think long and hard about this one, this is where the rubber really hits the road and it gets really, 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 really difficult to talk about. I wonder how many of us watching this today or tomorrow or next week or whatever, as we proclaim to be followers of Jesus, how many of us would still proclaim to be followers of Jesus if all of a sudden the government levied a 30% tax on our, our homes? Would we still keep our faith? Or would we say, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't keep my membership at that church anymore, and I don't, I don't follow that God anymore. I don't, I don't read the Bible. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do those things. How many of us would still proclaim to be Christians if the government seized our property? Or if the government took away our cars, or our right to own a computer, or a phone, <laughs> or an Xbox, or said, you can't have any of these things anymore because you're a Christian. It's not unlike the stories we find in Daniel, where they are literally threatened to their life if they worship God. And they do it anyways, because they know that there's only one true God. That's a question I have. It's a, a question I wrestle with. And I am in awe of the Old Testament examples who continually put their life on the line for their beliefs in God. I think we are entirely privileged in the Western church that we uh, have never really faced intense religious persecution. Uh, we have never really faced having to deal with losing uh, livelihood and um, our entire life savings because of our belief in God. That's the fourth takeaway I have for us from the book of Daniel, is that our discipleship one day really might cost us something. And so as I think about these stories, and as I wonder how they um, impact my life today, um, I want to share with you that they truly are not just these moral stories, uh, that they really help us change the cut of our moral and ethical character and fiber of our well-being. As we read these stories, they influence our decisions day in and day out. Yes, I believe Daniel was a story that happened a long time ago, and there was a person named Daniel, and he lived in Babylon and then Persia and whatever, and he did those things. But for me, the power of this story is that Daniel serves as some sort of everlasting example for us to follow in faithfulness. It's like what Paul says in the New Testament. He says, follow my example as I follow Christ's. And so may Daniel serve as an example for us when times are good and when times are bad. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.